Pshus, Rav Shechter, Rav Yudin. Many people, when we think of Pesach Sheini, so thoughts about matzah cross our minds. Some people may think a little bit about the saying Tachanun. I know that's always a touchy topic in some shuls. When I was a little boy, so I guess my grandmother brought this minute from Europe, we used to have Kneiloch. I don't know whether that meant because you were Machbar on Gebracht on Pesach Sheini, and not Machbar on Shoah Talam this was, so that was the minute we used to have Kneiloch. So when you think about some of these different Minhagim that you have, which really encapsulate what Pesach Sheini is, the truth is that for us today, Pesach Sheni isn't all that much. Pesach Sheni was important, Pesmancha, Pesemikdash, Rekayim, but for today, for today, it doesn't have really all that much of at least a halachic significance. Nevertheless, I think there is a message behind Pesach Sheni that is absolutely critical, and in a certain sense really is everything that we're going to talk about tonight. I know the show was originally scheduled for earlier in the week, I guess it's been a Shemayim, it's a good lead for me to uh, start off with Pesach Sheni, because if you think about it, one of the very first Shilas that was asked of Erov, of Meish Rabbeinu was the Shaila about what to do. We're Tom and Mace. We have a Shaila. On the one hand, the Torah says to bring a carbon Pesach. On the other hand, Kadesh Baruch just told us, we can't come to the Mishkan. Rabbeinu, Yemadeinu Rabbeinu, what should we do? So the Shaila was posed to Meish Rabbeinu. Now, of course, Meish Rabbeinu had a significant advantage over our Abundant today. Meish Rabbeinu had a direct line with the Kadesh Baruch So he asked the Kadesh Baruch what are you doing? The Kadesh Baruch told him, this is what you do. So yes, it's true that we don't have that direct line as Moshe Rabbeinu had. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu doesn't want us to have that line anymore because Lo Shemayimi, once the Torah was given and completed, so then Shaila's not answered that way. Nevertheless, we do get a line, albeit maybe not as direct, from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, And that's really what it's all about. When a Rav deals with a Shaila, tackles a Shaila, when a person presents a Shaila, what we are really trying to do ultimately is the same as was done in the Midbar. We're trying to understand what does a Kaddish Baruch Hu want of us? How does a Kaddish Baruch Hu want us to react when such and such a new question comes up? And again, without the direct nevuah of a Rabbeinu, a Kaddish Baruch Hu did give us those kalim, he gave us those utensils, gave us the ability to figure out, to determine what his ruts or what his will is. And we have to go back to the Torah itself. And if we go through the sugya from the Chumash, the Gemara, the Shalom, and try to understand just what is taking place when a Shailah is asked, what factors go into answering, who is supposed to be answering the Shailahs, so then hopefully we'll get a little bit of a better understanding to something which is so basic, which really touches on so many things that we do. Almost a day, it's impossible for a day to go by without a person in some shape or form formulating a Shailah. Sometimes he's able to resolve the ends themselves, sometimes he presents to others, sometimes looks in a safer. But the idea of giving and taking and asking and answering is so integral to our Torah observance. Let's go back to the basics and see how is it supposed to play out for us. So Rabbi Yudin referred to where the parasha really begins. The Torah talks about when a Shiloh comes up, you present it to the Sanhedrin. That's the model that the Torah illustrates for us in Pasha Shoftim. Ki poli mishpat. Now what exactly does that mean? What do you mean I don't know what to do? Open up a Chumash and see. Well the answer is, not everything is explicit in the Tershah Of course the Tershah the oral tradition, becomes a little bit more difficult to pin down what am I supposed to do. So here, before we can address the issue of Psachim and Shilas, let's get a little bit of an introduction as to what that term means, Tershah Something which of course is a basics of Aramuna, the existence of the oral tradition from the Kaddish Baruch Sinai. What exactly does that term mean, Tershah So the Rambam in his introduction to Tershah Mishnai divides up Tershah into several different categories. 
part of Tosh is in a certain sense very straightforward. HaKadosh Baruch Hu said X, Y, and Z. For example, HaKadosh Baruch Hu said Tefillin have to be square. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu said the fruit that I want you to take on Sukkot is an Esrog. There are certain things that are just crystal clear. Halach Lemoshe Mesinai, sometimes what we call Perusha Mekubala Mesinai, slight nuances of difference between the two. But there are certain things that are very, very clear. And there's not all that many Shilas to ask. I may not know the Halach Lemoshe Mesinai, so I may ask somebody who does, but there's not that much give and take about Halacha Lemoshe Mesinai. It's pretty straightforward. HaKadosh Baruch Hu said it, Meshavenu, Yeshua, etc. Ad until today. But then we enter into another area of Tashimapel where Shilas come up, and that's when it's not so clear. HaKadosh Baruch Hu didn't tell Meshavenu exactly what to do in this particular case. Rather, HaKadosh Baruch Hu instructed Moshe about certain rules, how to extrapolate, how to derive Halachas one from another, what we call the Midel Shatar Nidrashas Bahem, how to derive Kavachomer, how to compare one area of Halacha to another, how to Daishim Sukim, and that whole area of Halacha, that whole area of Tarshimapeh, now could potentially become subject to a dispute, to a Machlokas. A new Shaila could come up, and one Rav can analyze the Shaila and say, well, I think based on the following Kavachomer, based on the following drasha, based on the following, my understanding of this halacha, the halacha should be X, Y, and Z. And somebody else, somebody else equally qualified, may come up with a slightly different way of understanding. Maybe the kavachomer isn't a valid kavachomer. Maybe the drasha should be interpreted a little bit different. And now a machlokas arises. And now a shayla comes up. What do you do? Where do you go? The Torah says you go to the base in Agadol, you ask the Dayanim who are sitting in Yerushalayim for a psak, and a vote is taken, we follow a cherav lahatos, whatever the majority rules, that becomes in effect the halacha. At that point, when that process is complete, a shayla was raised, a suffix took place, a question was brought to Yerushalayim, the quote-unquote Supreme Court, in a sense, paskin the shayla, and the issue is over, it's complete. If somebody decides to say, well, I still have a differing opinion, that is a very serious Torah violation, a person is actually chayav misa, that's a, also in Pasha Shofta, we call it zokin mamre. So basically, once the psak is issued by the base in Agodo, the issue is pretty much put to rest. There is a concept in Halacha where sometimes the base in Agodo may be able to revisit a question, a little bit of a different, perhaps we'll get to it a little bit later on. But once the base in Agodo decides Halacha is such and such, Pretty much the discussion is over, at least for now. However, this is all true, assuming that there is a Beisdin Agodol. Unfortunately, historically, the Beisdin Agodol hasn't been around for quite some time. The Beisdin Agodol in Yerushalayim already ceased to exist, even a little bit before the Chorban. The Gemara recounts to us that 40 years before the Beisdin Mikdash was destroyed, the Beisdin Agodol, for technically reasons, no longer was functioning in Yerushalayim. Even though they weren't functioning in Yerushalayim, they still did exist as a governing body, and the idea of bringing Shilas to a base in Agodol still existed for some time afterwards, but eventually even that came to an end. And it's that period of Jewish history that we've been living in for quite some time, over 1500 years, where we haven't had a base in Agodol in Yushalayim for sure not, and even outside of Yushalayim. And now the question becomes, what do we do at this point? We don't have that mechanism of Pasha Shoftim, so how do we decide Shilas? So here the Gemara tells us that there is a concept in Halacha, of a shayla that arises that has not yet been paskined on. Even in the days when there was a base in Agadol, 
Things didn't happen so quickly. People weren't just emailing and texting Shiloh to the Sanhedrin. It took some time. So it would take time before Shiloh would be, would be analyzed. So what do you do before there's what we call an umdul minyan? Before there's an absolute decision by the Beisdin, what do you do? So here the Gemara tells us that Kozman, as long as the issue has not yet been voted upon, has not yet been resolved, if a person is what's called a Chacham Sheigil he is somebody who is qualified to Paskin and Shailah, and we'll talk a little bit later on what exactly that means and what it doesn't mean. If a person is qualified to Paskin and Shailah, then they're entitled to their opinion. They are permitted to follow their opinion, and not only are they permitted to follow their opinion, but their Tamidim or their community are also permitted and should, in effect, be following their opinion, even if their opinion is not necessarily the majority view. The Gemara tells us in Masech Shabbos about a uh, very significant machlokas between Rabbi Eliezer and the Chachamim. Rabbi Eliezer was the minority view. There was a machlokas about if a bris mila takes place on Shabbos. So we know that a bris actually pushes off Shabbos. What about the preparatory stages of the bris? What if we forgot to make a knife? What if we forgot to carry the knife? What if today the mole isn't here? Can the mole get into his car and drive to the bris on Shabbos? So today, we would call that Chil Shabbos the Araisa, because we paskin like Rabbi Akiva, that only the bris itself is permissible, but all the preparatory stages are prohibited. But Rabbi Eliezer disagreed. Rabbi Eliezer, one of Rabbi Akiva's Rabbeim, Rabbi Eliezer held, that Machshire Mila Doichnesa Shabbos, you are permitted to even do acts tantamount to Chil Shabbos bin HaTorah, so that the bris should take place. Lahalacha, nobody would ever dream of doing that today. But in the days of Rabbi Leza, not only did people dream of it, Rabbi Leza did it. And Rabbi Leza's town did it. And they followed his psak. The Gemara tells us in Masech Shabbos, rather than thinking that they were punished for following the, his psak, which the way we accept Lahalacha is called Chilul Shabbos, the Gemara says they were actually rewarded. And there was a time in history where the Romans decreed that certain communities could no longer practice Brismila. And Rabbi Leza's community was spared that decree. And the Gemara attributes that uh, special, that special uh, treatment that they were given as a reward for their diligence in the mitzvah of Mila. Diligence in the mitzvah of Mila, it was the Chil Shabbos. The Gemara says it wasn't Chil Shabbos because the halacha wasn't yet determined to be against Rabbi Eliezer. So once the halacha is nikvah, once the halacha is determined against Rabbi Eliezer, under no circumstances can one do it. If one does it, one's Chil Shabbos. As long as the Allah was not yet nikva against Rabbi Eliezer, was not yet determined, established against Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Eliezer's shita is still viable. Not only is it viable, but in fact, it should be practiced by him and his tamidim and his community, which in fact it was. Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, in his introduction to Igris Moshe, quotes this Gemara and elaborates upon the fact that as he's about to embark upon writing Sefer of Shavuot he is shaking with trepidation here, I'm about to paskin, not just for individuals, I'm about to paskin for Klal Yisrael. And what if I'm not correct? What if it turns out that I say something is permissible, if in Shemayim it's really not? Says Ramesha, that's not my job. My job is to paskin the Shailah. I have to try my best, and we'll see what that means as we go on. What does that mean to try one's best? To work as hard as one's possible to paskin correctly? Says Ramesha, at the end of the day, was Rabbi Eliezer correct, in the fullest sense of the word? Not really, the halacha was against him, and yet he was rewarded because, according to his understanding of Torah, it was in fact correct what he was posketing, and it wasn't decided against him. So this idea that there's what's called nikva halacha against somebody, in contrast to not nikva halacha against somebody, what mechanism is used to decide the final halacha? So we started off by saying, Beizin Agodo. 
What if there's an absence of Beis Din What if you don't have a formal Beis Din? Are there any other mechanisms available to be Kaveya the Halacha? So here, the Rambam also in his Agdoma Tepesha Mishnaya seems to uh, develop for us the beginning of a theme, which Rabbi Chon Vasanin elaborates upon, others pick up on as well, that there is a concept of what's called Kol Chachme Yisrael, Orov Chachme Yisrael. What would the Halacha be in the following case? You have a Shaya that comes up, and we just can't get the basin of gold together. We don't have a basin, they're not in Rishalat. They just can't, practically can't get a basin of gold together. But all the Chacham of that generation passed in one direction. It's a clear cut, there's an agreement, Nimnu Vagamru, that this is what the Allah is going to be without a formal Nimnu, without a formal uh, vote, without a formal basin. So the Rambam starts off this idea, and again, Rabbi Chanan completes it, that also takes on the status like a Beisdin HaGadol. Actually, Rabbi Chanan presents it in such a way that if you think about it, really in the perfect world, every child that comes up should really go to all the Chachmei Torah. Everybody who's a Higil HaRosh should weigh in and should pass it on the Shailah. It can't be. The Torah doesn't give us that. It's impractical. So the Torah gives us a system of having a Beisdin HaGadol. The Beisdin HaGadol are in a sense the representatives of the Chachmei Torah of that generation. And you follow the robe of the, of the Beisdin HaGadol. But in truly, the Beis and Agod are really representatives of the Tamir Chachadim Sheba Osa Ador in that generation. And in the absence of the Beis and Agod, so then you fall back on what the original system really should be, namely the Chachmiya Torah in each and every generation. Moshal Imad Davidom, doesn't give this Moshal, but he's living in a democracy, so I think maybe we would appreciate this Moshal. If you think about it, in a perfect democracy, I think somebody said something along the lines of the government, for the people, by the people. Really, we should be voting on everything. Every time any question comes up in Congress, or you're in Congress for, we should be deciding. So every American should be polled, should we raise the national speed limit? Every question that comes up, every single person should vote on. So we all realize immediately that that's not practical. Every, every year they try to give us a little bit of a feeling for that, so they put on the, you know, on the election slate, they put a bill or something to try to make you feel like as if you're uh, participating in what the, what the decision is going to be. So we know that you can't run a government like that, that every single person, every single Shiloh, what happens? So we put into, into a uh, system that we elect our representatives, and we hope that those representatives are basically speaking on our behalf. This is not a political plug for anything, but that's what's supposed to happen. That's how democracy is supposed to be functioning. So again, Lahavdil, in the Torah world, that's also happening in a certain sense. It's not elected officials. It's not done by a vote as to who are the Tamir HaChamim. The Tamir HaChamim, each and every generation, the Beis Nagadol, who come into existence, were appointed by previous Beis Nagadol, those Tamir HaChamim, each and every generation, are basically the spokesmen for the Chachmei Torah in each generation. And as such, Rebbe explains, when you don't have a Beis Nagadol, but you can have a Psach of Rov Chachmei Torah in that generation, that takes on the status of Beis Nagadol. It's with this understanding that Rebbe Chanan explains, what the Rambam says clearly, and it's really uh, quite obvious, that once something was agreed upon in the Gemara, so we no longer question what the conclusions of the Chachmi HaGemara were. Nobody in, uh, within the Torah world would ever suggest the following argument. Well, Ravashi said such and such. That was a nice tickle Torah that Ravashi said. He had an interesting Pshah of the Mishnah. But I have a different Pshah of the Mishnah. I'd like to pass it against Ravashi. So nobody would ever say such a thing. Why? What's the problem? What's wrong with that line of reasoning? So Rabbi Chon explains, because once the Gemara was sealed, what basically happened was, is that all the Chachmei Torah in the world accepted the Maskonas of the Chachmei HaGemara. Once that becomes the Rov Chachmei Torah, then the issue is closed. 
So you can no longer come as an individual and say, well, I would like to disagree with Ravashi. That's not you and Ravashi. That's you and the quote-unquote Beis and Agogu, Or that's you and the Rochach Torah of the last 2,000 years. That's not an acceptable argument in the world of Halacha. So this idea of Amdulaminyan, this idea that when you have a, a conclusion to a sugya, so the Das Yechidim, those individual views are in a sense rejected and are not longer revisited. So this is clear as part of the halachic process. It's this idea that is also expressed by the Gemara in the beginning of Masechah's Nida. The Gemara raises the question about when is it acceptable to rely on a Das Yochid, on an individual minority view, and when not. Sometimes the situation halacha arises, what's called the Shafat Chak. A very, very serious situation arises, and there are some extenuating circumstances. Sometimes those extenuating circumstances are monetary circumstances, sometimes other factors. And... What a sheet that perhaps, a view that we perhaps wouldn't accept on the normative situation, can we rely on that view or not? So the Gemara draws a distinction between whether it was Nimnu Vagamru, whether a certain sheet that was outright rejected, or whether the sheet is still viable. If the sheet that was not outright rejected, so then under certain circumstances, again, this debate in the postgame as to exactly what the parameters of these circumstances are, then we could invoke a principle called Kedai who so and so, Lismachalab Bishasar Chak. We can rely on such and such an opinion on very, very limited emergency uh, situation, extenuating circumstances. However, if a sheet that was already outvoted, so then under no circumstances can we say, well, it's okay, we're going to rely on Beisham Le'Bishasachach. Imagine if a, if a Psach Halach would come as follows. We would present to a rabbi the following Shailah. What should I do? The rabbi would say to you as follows. It's a machok is Beishamai Beishilel, and we paskin like Beishilel, but it's a shasad chak, you can rely on Beishamai. So if you get an answer like that, you should probably look for a different psaq. So the Gemara says you can't do that. Beishamai Vokham Beishilel ain't a mission. It was already upvoted. We can't, we can't bring back shikas back to life that have been excluded from the world of Allah. So Lechorah, the same should be true when we deal with things that were rejected by the Gemara, not just in the Mishnah, in the Gemara also. If there was one Shita, an Amorah that, was, that had one Shita, so we cannot say, well, we live in a difficult circumstances, so we're going to bring to Shita, we're going to dig up a Shita that appears somewhere in the Gemara that has not been part of normative halacha. You cannot do that. Even on things past the time of the Gemara, if there was a real bona fide Amdullah Minyan, if there was a really a situation where a certain sheet has just been not accepted at all, so then we have no right to go ahead and bring it back in a sense to life and say, well, it's a shasad chak. This nuance as to what's called the sheet of dechuya, when do we say that a certain opinion has been completely excluded and when do we say it's still up for negotiation, this is a very nuanced question. And again, this is something that a uh, Rav who's familiar with the, the details of that particular sugya and the concepts of what's considered to be a shita d'chuyah, not a shita d'chuyah, will have to weigh in and to see when can we say it's a shas of chak and therefore such and such shita is acceptable and when do we say it doesn't matter shas of chak, it's a very hard shas of chak, we know it's difficult but shas of chak doesn't mean that therefore everything is going to be permissible. So we have a little bit of an understanding as to the significance within the world of halacha as to what's called a, uh, a nimna v'gamra, at what point we say that certain shitas are no longer acceptable, free the zman of the Gemara, post the zman of the Gemara, a little bit of an understanding of this critical role of what's called rov chachmeh Torah. But now we get down to questions where perhaps there is no absolute rov chachmeh Torah on. Some very often you have shilas that come up, you're not asking for the consensus view of all of chachmeh Torah, you're asking your rabbi, you're asking your rav, and you want to know how, what are we supposed to do? 
what are some of the things that the Rav is supposed to be familiar with? What are some of the things supposed to be in his mind? What are some of the things supposed to be in our minds as we present these Shilas? <coughs> so the Gemara gives us uh, certain qualifications as to who should be involved in this give and take in Halach in the first place. Who is supposed to be pasketing these Shilas? So the Gemara talks about the idea of a Chacham Shehegil HaHorah. Someone who has reached that stage of being a Roy Lekach, being able, being qualified to paskin Shilas. And the question is, what goes into that? What exactly is necessary for a person to reach that point of being what's called a Chacham Shagil Hora? So the first and foremost prerequisite for being a Chacham Shagil Hora is knowledge of Torah. That's, uh, we shouldn't have to spend too much time addressing that. Obviously, a person has to be, be uh, very well versed in Torah in order to Paskin Shilas particularly in the area that he is pasketing in. You can have people who have uh, expertise in some areas of halacha, may not be as experts in other areas of halacha, but just as uh, Lahavdil, when you have somebody who goes to medical school, so uh, afterwards they, they may branch out and become more of a specialist in one area, but they have a certain hekif, there's a certain uh, understanding, there's a certain appreciation about everything, a little bit about everything, in order for them to be able to isolate in one area. So if you have somebody who really doesn't have any of that degree of hekif, doesn't have really any idea about anything except one very, very specific area that he knows about, one should be weary about is such an individual going to be able to present the proper Torah approach to that particular shayla. Even though in that particular area they may have done X amount of research, but they don't have that broad knowledge of other areas of Torah that will impact upon their ability to answer Shilas properly. So that's one area in terms of knowledge of Torah. There's another important area where the Gemara talks about the beginning of Masechah Sanhedrin, and this second area has become even more important as Manazeh, so it's called knowledge of the Mitzvahs, to understand just what the facts are, the, in a sense, non-Torah parts of the facts, in order to answer Shiloh properly. The Gemara tells us a story about Rav, before he was uh, willing to pass in Shilas in Hilchos Bechoros, very, very intricate areas of Aloha as to what constitutes a blemish in an animal, very serious uh, Shilas as to, you have a firstborn animal, what you're permitted to, not permitted to do, so you have to really understand animals. You can, you can say all the tyrus in Masech is the tyrus, but if you never saw an animal, if you don't know what's considered to be a mum, it's going to be very hard for you to answer the shadow properly. So the Gemara said, how did Rav uh, master this area of knowledge? The Gemara said he went to the farm. He went and spent a couple of months with the, with the shepherds and trying to hang out in the barns, hanging out on the farms, to figure out just what the facts are in order to be able to answer the Shilash properly. This, of course, has become very important, this manazeh, as the Metzios, as the world that we live in is so fast-paced, so many changes, every moment there's something new in medicine and technology and so many different areas, so Rabbanim have to keep up to date. And if they can't keep literally up to date, then they have to have the right people who are, who are uh, helping them, assisting them, and giving the right information. Every once in a while, somebody will present me a shayla with somewhat of a uh, complex metzius. So sometimes there's a little bit of an aside, I, I will say it, but sometimes with a little bit of a smile, a little half joke, say, I think that sack is only as true as the metzius is. It means if you're presenting me all the facts properly, so then this is what I think the halacha would be. But uh, just as we know, once again, back in the, in the realm of medicine, one slight nuance of fact can change the entire diagnosis. So a very, very good understanding, both of the halacha, as well as the mitzvah, is necessary in order to arrive at a, at a correct uh, psaq. So that's the second uh, important area in terms of knowledge of Torah, knowledge of the mitzvah as well. But there are other uh, important factors that go into pasketing a shayla correctly. And this already goes way, way beyond just the, the technical training part. 
this goes a little bit into the metaphysical part of, of the halacha, which as we said before, ultimately halacha is to try to determine what the Ratzon of HaKadosh Baruch Hu is, so it's not surprising that we enter into that realm a little bit past the uh, intricate uh, areas of halacha, and that's what's called Siyat HaDishmaya. The Gemara tells us in uh, Masechus Ksubas and other places, that when a Rav answers a question, so we want to make sure that he has the proper siyat d'shmaya, the proper assistance from a kaddish baruch hu. Now that doesn't mean that he's uh, asking a kaddish baruch hu what the halacha is. That we don't do. Lo b'shemayimhi. The Gemara has a famous story also about Rabbi Eliezer when Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yeshua were arguing about a certain shaila, and Rabbi Eliezer said, "If I'm right, so I'm going to prove to you that I'm right." And uh, he asked for all kind of miracles to happen, and the miracles happened. And then he said, let a voice come down from heaven to support me. And the voice came down out of heaven to support him. And Rabbi Yeshua got up and he said, Lo me. We don't paskin based on voices. We don't paskin based on osos and mosim and miracles. We paskin based on the Dini HaTorah. And we're going to analyze the sugyas and come to the right conclusion based on, on uh, human logic and uh, human intellect. So we clearly are not talking about that type of siyat d'shmai in terms of actually speaking to a Kaddish Baruch Hu. But nevertheless, the Gemara tells us that it is critical for a Rav to have the proper siyat d'shmaiya when answering a Shaila. What has to be done in order to attain that siyat d'shmaiya? So the Gemara gives us a little bit of an inkling as to what's necessary to be done to attain the proper siyat d'shmaiya. So one thing the Gemara tells us is that a person has to have the highest regard for his Rabbeim. And the Gemara actually tells us in the context of a prohibition that someone is not permitted to paskin a shayla b'makom rabo. Mora halacha b'fnei rabo. If a person paskins a shayla in the presence of his rabbi, even if it seems to be a fairly simple shayla, there are again nuances of, of differences as to what, how, how simple is simple, but the Gemara seems to present even a fairly simple shayla. One has to be very, very weary, must be very careful not to paskin in the presence of his rabbi. Why is that so important not to paskin in the presence of one's Rebbe? So the Gemara gives two reasons. One reason the Gemara says is, is that it's just not kovedik, not respectful to the Rebbe. And then the Gemara adds a second dimension. The Gemara says, lo mistaya milsa, that he may not have the prophecy at the Dishmaya. So some Rishonim actually say that the lack of Siyad Deshmaya is because he's being disrespectful to the Rebbe. And other Rishonim say the two different issues. So the interesting, Lom Deshashayla, but for our purposes it's clear that Siyad Deshmaya is a major factor. The Gemara actually tells a story about one of the Amoraim who, uh, by mistake, did Paskin in the presence of his Rebbe and actually made a mistake in the Psach Halacha and he attributed it to the fact that he was lacking in that, in that Siyad Deshmaya. So you see, Chazal take this with the utmost seriousness, this idea of Siyat Deshmaya, that it's not, this is not just, you know, a hardcore fact. This is not just a mathematical equation. This is not just because I got a hundred on the Bechina and therefore I'm going to pass in properly. There is a great uh, amount of Siyat Deshmaya that's necessary. And one of the things that will, uh, will assist the person in maintaining the Siyat, in attaining the Siyat Deshmaya, is his deference for his Rabbeim, his Kovat HaTorah, to those who came before him, his understanding that there are greater Tamei present than, than he. So that's one important factor in terms of, uh, of Siyat Deshmaya. Another important factor in terms of Siyat Deshmaya is the notion of Anivos. That a person has to uh, approach Torah with the understanding that of humbleness. And here we go back to uh, the original model, the original child that we spoke about, Milan Ugolim and Meshur Rabbeinu. Meshur Rabbeinu was Rabbeinu. He was the greatest Tamil Chacham who ever lived. It wasn't just coincidental that he was the greatest Anav who ever lived as well. That's the Mephesh Apostle, for Ishmash Anav Neod. Why is there a correlation between the person being the greatest Anav and being the greatest Tamil Chacham? So I think that maybe the answer is based on 
there's a famous pasuk we say many many times in the davening on Yom Kippur that Kimala Oret we say Tashta Kimala Oret Des Hashem Kamayim Layam Chasim that we speak about how the how the water eventually the Asad Lava in days to come so Mala Oret Des Hashem that the world is going to be full with the wisdom of Hakadosh Baruch Hu, like the ocean, like the depths of the ocean are filled with water. A very strange marshal. What's the connection between the ocean and the water and the depths and the chachma? So I think perhaps what this pasuk is referring to is as follows: We know why is it that the ocean ultimately fills up with the, much, with the most water? The answer is very simple. It's a simple geology. If it's the deepest hole, so the water fills up. The water goes to the to the deepest part. So the water is the, the ocean is the greatest hole Kadesh Baruch Hu made. So the male, all the water ends up there. That's the marshal that the pasuk says. When there's a great, 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 great hole, then a lot, a lot of water can come in. If a person is malgaiv, if a person is haughty, there's no room for the Torah to come in. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is waiting to, to, to pour the Torah in. He's waiting, he's waiting, he's waiting. So, when the person is an honor, so then HaKadosh Baruch Hu enables some of that Torah to come in. If a person is a Balgaiva, so that's what the Gemara says, call him Mizgachachmoso, Mishtachachas Bimenu. If a person is haughty, so then even that little bit of Torah that he had is going to be lost. He won't be able to be successful in terms of, of attaining a real true Torah knowledge. So these are all part of the Siyatah Deshmaya principle. But Moshe Feinstein, in the Hakdama that we referred to before, also speaks about a, a critical part of attaining Siyatah Deshmaya. And Moshe explains to us that a Rav is not supposed to be focusing on saying that, well, what are they paskin in Shemayim? That's not my job, to paskin in Shemayim. My job is to paskin in this world. Says Moshe, the questions that a Rav has to ask himself are as follows. Have I been Amel? Have I really worked through have I really given all my kochos into working out the sugya, learning the sugya properly? We speak about this expression, Have I just approached the issue superficially? Have I just, you know, relying on, uh, you know, third-hand information? Am I really, really working? Have I gone back to the Gemara? gone back to the Rishonim? Gone back to the Shulchan Aruch? Really, really figure out, have I spent the time analyzing the Shaila, speaking to perhaps other people who can help me inside the Shaila? Have I given the proper amount of Amol Shul Torah? Says Ramesha, that's the, that's the question that the Rav has to ask himself. And as such, the person who does do all that effort, then a Baruch will give him the Siyad Dishmaya. What the final Pesach and Shemayim is, that's not our concern. It wasn't Rabbi Eliezer's concern. Rabbi Eliezer passed in one way, and in fact, Nimnu Vagom were against him, but Kozman, that it wasn't, he wasn't actually opposed by Pesach of Bezdin, he was free to follow his Pesach, and him and his Tamidim, his community, were rewarded for following the Pesach, because Rabbi Eliezer gave him the proper amount of Amalashal Torah. So these are all parts of the Siyatah Dishmaya principle. person has to put in the effort, a person has to have the proper mindset of, uh, of, of Anivas, a person has to have the proper covet for his rabbeim. If all of those above, then hopefully the person will be zolcha in terms of siyad dishmayim. When a uh, rav approaches the question of psak halacha, so we started out by saying there's some shailas, they're not really shailas. If a person calls up and asks, so what does it say in Chumash? He wants to know, my lad, eat chametz and Pesach. So that's not really a psak halacha. That says what the Gemara calls, zil kar rav. It says in the Chumash, open up the Chumash and you see it. So that's not really a quote-unquote psak halacha. The area that we've been talking about, uh, much, uh, much vaguer, much less clear. What do you do in this case? What do you do in this new situation? And how you, uh, one person says one way, one person says another way. The issues are, are definitely less clear than the Chamat and Pesach. But even within the world of the Tarshim there are certain Shilas that come up that are even less clear. Because certain Shilas, 
don't involve absolute proofs in the sense of a cold logic that uh, it says this mokor, this is what it says in the Taisis, and this is what it says in the Shukhanach, and this is the Mishnaburah, and I can point to you, exactly such and such. Those are the easy shilas. The real hard shilas are the shilas that involve in between the lines. The shilas that, are, that, that involve the second area of Torah, which is not what we, in, in our lingo, we use the terms, the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. So whether those are the correct terms or not, I'm not sure. But there definitely is a principle called the Ruach HaHalacha. We don't have to go very far to see. The Ramban, the famous Ramban in Pashas Kedoshim, speaks about the Ruach HaHalacha, the spirit of the law. Kedoshim to you, about being holy, says the Ramban. That doesn't mean not to eat treif. Not to eat treif. I already know, you're a Dechelech Aleph, tells me what's treif, what's not treif. Kedoshim to you is a whole different world. Kedoshim to you means not to be a novel B'Shosh Torah, Not to do those activities that are technically permissible, but yet fly in the face of the spirit of the law. Or another, another famous Ramban in Pashas Emor, when the Ramban speaks about the Ruach of Shabbos, he speaks about the Lamites Belachos. There are certain things that are explicitly prohibited on Shabbos, and then there are other things which are in between the lines. It's a tircha, it takes away, it detracts from Shabbos. Remember when I was a kid, so they used to always tell us, it's not Shabbos dick. So when we were little, we used to think, oh, not Shabbos dick is a parent's way of telling you, you're really allowed to do it, but don't do it if it doesn't look right. And then when you get a little bit older, you realize, no, it's much more than that. Not Shabbos dick means that this is part of the Torah as well. It's not the absolute letters of the law. You can't pinpoint exactly where it says the following activity is also. But those who understand what the Ruach of Shabbos is all about, what the tzura of a certain day is supposed to be, what the image of a certain uh, Torah lifestyle is supposed to be, realize immediately that such and such activities are off limits. I remember I, uh, I, I once had a, um, a situation where very rarely that I get a, a feedback from a Usually if it's a feedback, it's usually good. Hopefully it's good. But in one particular case, I actually got a letter. This already goes back quite some time when people used to actually remember how to write letters. Somebody actually wrote me a letter in response to a psaq, And it was really a private psaq. And I, the only reason I could tell them the story, I have no idea who the person was. It was a shiloh that was coming to me through somebody else, through somebody else. So they uh, sent me, uh, asked me a shiloh. So I answered what I thought, hopefully it was correct, the area, the particular details of the halacha. But the premise of the person's question was bothering me a little bit. There was a certain uh, lack of an understanding of something which I think fell into this next category of the Ruach HaTorah. So I responded, and, and I hoped in a very, uh, very, very respectful way. I, I, I told the person who asked me the question, please relate to the other, to the, to the Shoel, that I think that maybe there should be a little bit of a reevaluation whether such and such activity is appropriate with it. And I was so careful with my words. I remember thinking to myself, as I said the words, I was going to say Das Torah. And I said, you know, in some communities, people hear the word Das Torah, they get turned off. So I didn't want to say that word. I said, Lefi Ruach HaTorah, something like that. And that was the phrase I used, Lefi Ruach HaTorah, the spirit of the Torah. And that was it. It was a very, very innocent comment. I got what we call a, a, a Mishapara, or a, the opposite of a Mishaberach. I got a letter saying the following complaint was, who do you think you are speaking for the Ruach HaTorah? That was the, now, I did not answer the letter, but I think the corollary of asking a Shaila is, if you trust me to try to give you what I think the Halacha is, then you should trust me in what I think the Ruach HaHalacha is as well. Sometimes people have this idea that somehow, well, if it says it the Feirish, black and white, so then the rabbi has what to say, and if it's somehow, you know, uh, not exactly what it says in Shulchan Aruch, or maybe it's a Machlokes, or maybe somebody said something else, or maybe it wasn't Nimnu Vagamru, and then, and a lot, a lot of different factors kind of be thrown around, 
And then it becomes a little bit of a free-for-all that everybody's entitled to their own opinion about this. So I think that that's a really a, a misunderstanding of a major part of the halachic process. All the things that we've been talking about that go into the halachic process, namely the idea of covet of Arabeim, how that's such a uh, critical prerequisite for the prophecy after the Shemaya, the notion of Anivos, Anivos in and of itself speaks to uh, how one speaks about other Tamil Chacham in the generation, how one looks to one's Rebbeim, how one uh, sometimes makes light of certain Minhavi Yisrael. Those are all part of, of, a, of a picture as to how one uh, approaches Tzach Halacha. So I think that all of the, what we spoke about are critical, not only in terms of an absolute, you know, exact, such and such, but when we answer questions, the questions brought to us in terms of Ruach Halacha are equally as important as well. The idea of Tzach the topic of Tzach is hard to try to put it into 45 minutes, but I think time is just about over. I think that if we walk away from uh, Pesach Sheni, besides with a couple of extra Kneilach in our stomach, or whether we had a Tachlan, didn't have a Tachlan, but I think that if we, if we walk away with this idea that Tzach is really a way of hearing what a Kaddish Baruch Hu has to say to us. Chazal say in the Hashem. If a person was Mavakesh Hashem, a person was seeking out a Kaddish Baruch Hu, where would they go? They went to Meshavenu. They asked, a person is going to ask, but the Tamachacham has to say, so it has to be done with that reverence, with that Kovid Rosh, as a Mavakesh Pene Hashem. And Tamachachamim, similarly also, have to treat this tremendous chus to be able to, to uh, try to the best of their ability to transmit the Ratzon Hashem, that ultimately we're all trying to do Ratzon Hashem. That's the real goal of everything we've been talking about, is to try as best as we can to determine what the Ratzon Hashem is. So in a world that doesn't have Nevoah and doesn't have room for Tumim and doesn't even have a Sanhedrin sitting in Rishalayim, but a Kaddish Baruch Hu B'chazda still gave us the Kalim. He still gave us uh, the Torah, he gave us the Chachmei HaTorah, to try to turn to them and to try to understand and to try to, as best as we can, to apply the, the word, the eternal words of a Kaddish Baruch Hu to each and every situation that comes up. Because we can really only conclude with the words of Rabbi Chunyeh Ben Akana, he would start his tefillah, start his learning every day, so we ask the Kaddish Baruch Hu, for that's the Yashmaya, Shlo Omel Tamei Tov, Lo Tamei Lo Mutar Os, Lo Mutar, that we shouldn't err in our judgment, that both as Sholem, as Rabbanim, everyone who was involved in the entire halachic process, Kaddish Baruch Hu should grant us that's the Yashmaya, and we should be Zoha, that we'll, we'll be able to hear the Dvar Hashem, perhaps a little bit more clearer, in the Meheira, Yibana Beis Mikdash, so the Beis and Agola will come back once again, and all the Shailas, and all the Sveikas, and all the issues that have to be uh, brought to the Beis and Agola, will give it that Siyat HaDishmaya, Meheri Yomeinu.